Welcome to the Troy Kearns Podcast, where we talk all things real estate, business, and entrepreneurship. Today, I am with my very good friend, my very good attorney, the Tom Grover, hailing from Utah State University, the the University of Nebraska College of 2011. You graduate law school, and then prior to that, you are a full-time radio host. The reason I have Tom Grover on the podcast today is that Tom is my probate attorney in Nevada, and he's one of the smartest guys that I know in terms of an attorney. He's a good friend of mine. We share lots of books. We share lots of ideas. We share lots of conversations, and he's out. We've here. lost money playing poker together. We we have lost money. <laughs> Tom, why don't you— I've lost more than you. Yes, that's true. Why don't we start with who you are okay. and take us to where you're at in your career right now. Uh, well, yeah, you, you summarized it. I grew up in Logan, Utah. That's north of Salt Lake. And I attended uh, Utah State. Uh, and I got a degree in political science. And I realized too late into the game it was worthless. There was a night I was at home reading Alexis de Tocqueville. And I was into it. It was very enjoyable. And I thought, I'm going to order a pizza for dinner. Right. And so I order the pizza, and uh, the knock on the door comes. Um, I go to pay him, and he looks over, and he sees on the couch I've left my Tocqueville book out. And uh, he says, hey, is that Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville? And I said, it sure is. <laughs> and he says, uh, are you taking a class from Peter McNamara right now? And I said, I sure am. And he says, I did too. That'll be $25. <laughs> and so I, I realized um, you know, a political science degree just doesn't really give a lot. Um, and I'd already been planning on going to law school. Why law school? I enjoy writing and problem solving and arguing. Uh, as you know, you and I have had many arguments. Let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but a lawyer ultimately is a problem solver right. and a writer. And I enjoy those things. And that's kind of what I always figured I would do. Um, I did have a break between Utah State and law school. When I was... At law school, I uh, applied to do like an overnight shift at the radio station in town running the boards. And I went down and applied for it, and they said no. And then I wrote them back and said, listen, I've always been interested in radio. Just I'll come down and scrub your toilets. Just let me kind of hang around and see what's going on. So you're letting them know, and I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah, and but it's also kind of a little bit of a weirdo, uh, you know. Well, everybody's a little bit of a weirdo. That's okay. Yeah. Anyway, so eventually um, I persisted in that, and they said, okay, come on down. You can uh, run the boards on Saturday morning from 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. It was really early. 5 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Saturday mornings. Okay. And the only, Which is like the worst shift, by the way. Yeah, nobody's listening. And <laughs> yeah. they, had, they had a local news broadcast uh, during that time, and nobody's listening except the dairy farmers and the cows. There's not a single soul out there except for, for, the, for those those guys. And so I did, and I learned how to, uh, you know, operate the, um, the, the board. And I started being the board off for high school games. And then just slowly, because I was there, uh, started getting more responsibility. And that was really an important thing that I learned is that uh, anytime you have a business, 
the most important thing is to get your foot in the door because when they need somebody, they're not going to say, who in the entire world is the best person for this job? They're going to first look to those that are immediately around because I definitely wasn't the most talented or able person, but I was there. Well, you know, what's funny is we have a similar background in that regard. I don't know if you know. Yeah, I remember you did radio up in Seattle, right? Right. So it's and it's funny that you just mentioned that you were doing whatever it took to get your foot in the door. So. You know, I'm literally at Central Washington University and I'm finishing up college and I have to like either have a thesis or an internship. Obviously, you probably can figure out what I'm going to do. It's not going to be a thesis. And so at that point in time, we and we talked about this just before the show, I was in, really in love with like Howard Stern and Tom oh. Likas and all these yep. shock jock type of guys. And so I felt like, you know, I'm getting a degree in communication studies. Why don't I try to be on the Tom Likas show as the Tom Likas, you know, guy who does whatever the intern. They always had an intern. And so I went in. And got an internship, not on Tom Likas' show, which I actually went down and met with him at, at an event. I probably could have got the internship, but it was an unpaid one. But I actually went and got an internship on the BJ Shea experience, which is still going today. And then I turned that into an $8 an hour promotions director job mm-hmm. right out of college with that beautiful college degree that I got. Uh, that is a, like a Seattle show? Yeah, it was The Buzz, and it was KISW. KISW, the rock of Seattle is still around, and KQBZ got transformed to the wolf would actually brought me down to Las Vegas because I actually turned my promotions director job of an $8 an hour promotions director job into my sales career, selling radio advertising and account executive, as you probably know from being in that radio industry. So I can tell you that the 5am to 10am slot time is a very not sought after time because (laughs) I was basically on my station, it was all infomercials and public yep. service announcements until I got involved and I started selling the, all those spots for like a dollar to the car dealerships and we just dominated it that way. But it just goes to show you that you got your foot in the door. Yep. I got my foot in the door. I turned it into a sales career. You got your foot in the door and where'd that take you? Uh, well, at the radio station, eventually they, they had a, a sports show that ran from four to six every night during the college school year because it was the flagship station for Utah State Sports. And so I went to them and said, look, you've got this time slot that is not going to be used during the summer. Just why don't you let me have a show, which is pretty crazy because unlike Saturday morning from 5 to 10, weekdays from 4 to 6 is a pretty important time slot. That's not... So this is every weekday? Every weekday, Monday to Friday. What time? 4 to 6 p.m. You have your own show. Yeah. And so... What's this called? It was called For the People, which I mean, it's... (laughs) A little bit cheesy, but... Can we find some of this to put on the podcast or link to? Do you have any of these episodes? Yeah, I have them. Okay. Yeah. Because we can go, we have a limited number of time and we want to talk about legal matters. Let's mm-hmm. skip to, you did the radio show. Yep. You got through college. You hosted the radio show. We'll put a contest on that. You get your law degree. Yep. Tell me about your family. Uh, well, my dad is uh, a CPA, just retired. Okay. My mom sells real estate, you know, a, a kindred soul to you. Thank you. Yep. And she, she just retired as well. Awesome. And, um, you know, I just, I'd say I learned a lot from both of them, just watching them because they both own their own businesses. I saw that it takes just doing whatever needs to be done whenever it needs to be done because that's what I saw them doing all the time growing and we up. Have, we have a couple of those cases where we've had to do whatever it takes to get it done. Right. In my opinion, that's the ultimate skill in problem solving is that at the outset, and I know you have this inside of you, that I'm going to solve this problem. This right. problem is going to get solved, and we're going to find a solution 
that works. And there are people that have that and people that don't. I think that's something you're either born with or you're not, to be honest, just in my observation. I probably agree with you. You know, the nature versus nurture, though. I th- On this particular issue, there's other things people can develop. Right. But this attitude of I'm going to solve the problem is something people are just born with. Can I ask something that people might get mad at me about, but even <laughs> though I know the answer, mm-hmm. are you Mormon because you're from Utah? You sh- I am. Yeah, yeah. There's a few up there. Okay. And do you have any children? I have three, which is which, you know, they might throw me out because I'm not doing my part. How many are you supposed to have if you're Mormon? Every every generation seems to have fewer kids because they're so expensive. You okay. know, all right. My grandparents had seven. So your so your grandparents had seven. Yep. How many did your parents have? Five. Five. You've got three so far. Oh, you, that's it. That's three. it. Yeah. That's and all. And you got a lovely wife, Karen, mm-hmm. and then Charlie is one of your. Yep. And then who are the other two? I've got two daughters, Rose and Lucy. So you're a family man. Mm-hmm. You're an attorney. Let's talk about why, how we found each other. So, do you remember how that happened? I think it was through Steve Hoops, right? Um, who I who I've done a lot of probate work with over the years. So Good guy. I, I mentioned to you earlier before the show that you're in my book, and you know mm-hmm. one of the things I gave an example about is like understanding probate. And for those of you guys who are listening right now, first of all, give us a subscribe, give us a five star review, and if you got any questions and you want to hear Tom back on, definitely comment below and let us know what questions you have. We're going to get into some really cool legal stuff right now. Tom is a great attorney and Tom has solved a lot of problems for me, but and how we started. So literally I've got a cold caller calling for me and he says, Hey, I've got a guy who's got a deal. You need to look at it. There's a bunch of money in equity. We look at it at that point in time, we had never dealt with a probate house at all. So I call a couple attorneys that I know and the attorney I hired, I think you know who it is. We won't say her name, but she also handled another case, the BB King case, I think. Remember, I'm going nowhere with her fast. She's telling me that the probate is, the bank is calling it a short sale. And I'm like, are you sure they call a short sale a probate? She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm in constant communication with them. It's going fine. Well, thankfully, I had such a great client, Danny Tate, that he was in it with me. Like he was in it to get the deal solved with me. And he's like, I just got this periodical from these guys, Hoops and Norton, and they're these lawyers and they can help me out. Maybe we should call them. (laughs) And basically he's like, you know, you're kind of in over your head, kid, and maybe we should call somebody else. And so I called Steve Hoops and I told him, and he's like, well, no, I'm not an attorney. I'm I'm a real estate agent, but if you need a good attorney, as long as you don't fish in my pond, Call Tom Grover, and that's how our relationship started. Because mm-hmm. Steve is a um, real estate agent who does probate sales, and so when I have a client that comes in and they need a, an agent, if they don't have one, I'll give them their Steve's number, and they'll decide whether they want to hire him. But I've liked Steve over the years because probate sales are a little bit different, right? Um, and he has that same you know problem solving attitude to make sure the deals get done and that clients get paid, which I appreciate. Now, did I ever solicit you business for real estate? No, I've still, I've, I've kept that with Steve. And the other interesting thing about that too is- Would that be good for someone to solicit probate attorneys for business though? Well, it's kind of a hard thing to be honest, because what happens is every year or two, there's a seminar that comes through town about how it's easy to make money doing probate sales and they get- 
a bunch of real estate agents signed up for the seminar. And I know this happens because one week I'll go to probate court and now all of a sudden there's 10 real estate agents who are there that just want to show up and I guess have clients fall into their lap. I don't, I don't know. But nobody follows up. Nobody sticks with it, right? No. And that really is kind of the thing we're talking about. The reason that I use Steve uh, pretty much exclusively is because I know he's going to get the job done, right? And right. You know that you can depend on him. Yeah. And he knows he can depend on you. And it's a cohesive relationship. And the cool thing, honestly, a shout out to Steve. Most guys would not put someone like me in the room with their attorney that they're getting a lot of business from because they'd be scared. But he wasn't scared because he knew his relationship was strong with you. Yep. And he knew that you would help me out. And it worked out great for him because... I think we ended up giving him a couple deals that didn't work out for for me. Yeah. So I'm not telling real estate investors or agents to not try to develop that. The reason that I have worked with Steve now for a decade is because he did approach me about 10 years ago, just as I was admitted to the bar and that built out of that. So ah, get them before they get going. <laughs> well, so he got you. Smart. He, he started at about the same time I did, though. But what, what I'm saying is if you want to do probate sales, you don't need to go do a seminar. You don't need to pay somebody a lot of money to teach you. You can learn about it online. We'll talk about the process here. But you need to reach out and establish a relationship with some attorneys. Email them. Say, hey, let's go to lunch. Let's uh, do this. Let's do that. Let's play poker, whatever, golf, tennis, whatever your thing may be, and get in that way. But just showing up, the thing I always think is interesting, these people just show up to probate court, and then they're wallflowers in court, right? They don't say nothing. They're not talking to anybody, or if they do, they're very, very tepid. And that's never going to deliver the goods. Right. Since we kind of skipped over, what is probate? The best definition that I can think of is that when a person dies, probate's the process by which legally we resolve their financial situation and distribute their assets. When you're dealing with probate on a regular basis, what form are you dealing with it in? And I know there's many different methods. I mean, like when you're doing a probate for somebody, why are you doing it? Well, somebody's passed away. Okay. And they have assets in their name. So it has to do with death, first and foremost. First and foremost, yeah. And they may have debt in their name. So the most common type of debt somebody has when they pass away. Well, it's a mortgage. But they're also, the other most common types are medical debt and credit card debt. And so, you know, with with probate, you have a court-supervised process where the assets are gathered, the debts are identified, and there's a process to work through and and resolve all of that so that all of the assets are gathered and the debts are resolved, and then you can make a distribution to the heirs of, uh, of the estate. Okay. So I've got a few questions that we have already pre-scripted that I want to ask you. Okay. Um, one of the questions is, how do you schedule your day and do you outline when you're st- do you outline any sort of routine of how you start your day? This is a constantly evolving thing, and I could we could talk about this for hours, and I feel uncomfortable answering it because I have more questions about this than answers. Um, So it's a struggle for you. Well, I don't know if it's a struggle. It's, it's a, it's an ongoing process, but what I aspire to do every day is um, some sort of exercise, family time, time with books, time with meditation, and then a little bit of downtime, right? And making all those fit can change day to day. Some days I have, 
court hearings and commitments and a lot of firm appointments, and that can be a challenge. And then other days like today, this is my only firm appointment, so I'm getting other stuff done uh, at the same time. But I've, what I've found is if I do those things every day, productivity is much higher. Right. A hundred percent. And I can tell you like today, normally when I'm in Vegas, I try to go hiking. And today okay. I, I just, you know, I like to go hiking with people. Sometimes it's hard to get as motivated because I've done the hike so many times. So I was like, you know, where did you go? Which one? I go up to Craft Mountain, which is in Calico Basin. Oh, okay. It's like a six mile hike and I can do it in a pretty, I try to go pretty fast and it's really challenging. But today I, you know, I didn't have enough time and I went into the gym and, and I feel great now. And I felt like mm-hmm. if I didn't go to the gym and if I didn't go and do that part of my routine, like the whole day falls apart. Like, it's like, you're not going to go and get those hours back. You're not going to go do it at five or six o'clock. That's your family time. That's the time that you need to spend with your kids. Yep. And so, and giving a shout out to a lot of different people, especially like people who are like way more organized than me, like my wife and other people, like even uh, Ryan Panetta, a friend of mine who, who you know as well, like who have better, more organized routine. It seems like the stricter you are on your routine, the better things go for your life. Yeah. Well, and, and what I found too is the, the most precious time of the day. <laughs> is the early morning, like 5 until about 10 a.m. 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And the thing that I am in a constant debate about is, do I use that time for the the personal renewal items that I just mentioned, or do I use that for work and then do the personal renewal times later? So here's something that I'm doing right now. I just went through like a 30-day yoga journey, Mm -hmm. and it changed my entire body, how I feel, everything. And I'm so I realized that number one, you got to work out first thing in the morning. And number two, and this has been the hardest thing to get going for me, is that every successful person that I really look up to journals. And I have a journaling book, and it's been the hardest thing. Even though it's like two sentences, yeah, just getting me to self-reflect and commit to that has been super difficult. So that's on my goals uh, that I wrote for 2021. It's it's going to happen. Can I make a of course. suggestion here? Of course on this? you can. Yeah, because I, I agree with you on journaling. There is a author named David Sedaris. Do you know who David Sedaris no. is? Okay. He writes these books that are kind of dry comedy. But one of the things that he did to develop as a writer was journaling every day. And he started back in the late 60s or early 70s. And about four years ago, he published um, selections from the first half of his journals. And it's interesting to listen to because you can hear his writing improve and his self-reflection. And so if anybody's interested in journaling, I recommend listening to that because you can hear the process in real time from him. And they're really funny too. Now the funny is just a bonus, but listening to the way his introspection and his writing improves is, in my opinion, eye-opening. Yeah, and I know so many people who do it. It's just a good habit of anybody who's going to be successful is daily reflection. It's like, how do you know how far you have come if you can't reflect on about where you have been? Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of times we're like, you know, even today at the gym, as I'm running in the gym and I'm on the treadmill and I'm running good, and I'm like, this was hard for me like five years ago. This was hard for me a year ago. Like, And I hadn't been to EOS in 173 days. They told me today, like when I was in there, when I looked back at it and I'm looking at the, you know, that mountain changed everything for me and then yoga changed everything for me. And now putting all those things in a combination is going to meta. Cause I'm looking at my age right now where I'm like, 
and this is what happened for me on social media. When I looked at my first video of myself in social media, I go, I need to get in shape, right? I, I thought I was kind of in shape because I could keep up with people. And I was like, when I started seeing myself on video, I was like, I need to get in shape. And so going through like the self-reflection for me, getting on the scale every morning for me is the type of accountability that I need for myself that we have a way of, I guess, as human beings, ignoring the things that we don't want to deal with mm-hmm. and kind of putting them in the, like, I'll give you an example. Like I have a course that is a lot of hard work. The book was a lot of hard work putting that off. So I kept putting it off and doing the other stuff I like, like flipping houses and this and that and the other thing, rather than getting to the stuff that I know needs to be done. And I put that off and go to something else. So I think it's important to reflect. Uh, one question I had for you, what do you wish that everybody would understand about being an attorney that they don't understand? One of the questions, I mean, I know you deal with a lot of people who have never worked with an attorney before. That is such a good question. I guess you're asking is what what are misunderstandings about attorneys or how attorneys work? Yeah, I mean, about your job in specifics, because a lot of times with attorneys, people either are scared of them, intimidated by them, or they don't understand what they do. When I first started to hire an attorney, I just felt like they all did the same thing. Right. So with probate, whenever I've brought you something that's been outside of probate or something that's outside of your expertise, you've always been quick to say, you know what? I don't deal with that, Troy. You need to talk to this person. I'm a trust litigation. I'm dealing with this or I'm dealing with that. So tell us about the things that you do in probate that you wish that people would understand a little bit better so that they made your job easier, I guess. Well, I think overall, just maybe to answer your question about lawyers generally, is I think there's a perception that lawyers just argue or fight. And maybe that's the one thing I would want to convey to everybody is that, like I was saying earlier, what we are is problem solvers. And sometimes solving a problem is a matter of collaboration because you might have uh, two parties or two attorneys who are at loggerheads, but there's a way to make things work for everybody, right? Right. And you go forward that way. Sometimes, though the opposing party or opposing attorney is not cooperative, or it's just a situation where the law or the facts put people for, at, at, uh, at odds with each other. And that's a point where a lawyer becomes a mercenary and is going to go out and do battle. And that's what most people think of, but that's only one dimension of the problem solving that a lawyer does. Okay. If that makes sense. That's and a great so, answer. Yes. And so sometimes, sometimes a client may say, I don't know why you're not going and beating them up. And, and my answer would be, well, because that's not the most efficient or effective path to the most effective outcome for you for X, Y, and Z. And, and I'm speaking in very general terms. Well, and that it brings up a good point for me is, and this is like a little secret that Tom told me a long time. So <laughs> my first deposition that I had, you know, Tom's a good friend of mine and I go to him for like just friend advice as well as for law advice. And I said, Tom, I'm getting deposed and here's my attitude about it. And you're like, you know, I laugh at guys like you were saying it was something like that. And you're like, go in there and be their friend. Go in there and be the nicest guy. And tell me a little bit about that during the depositions, about how you do depositions and what those are and, and your strategy for that and why you gave me that type of advice. Even among experienced attorneys. What's a deposition, first of all? Okay, a deposition. In a lawsuit, we um, have a party come to the lawyer's office. We're sitting down kind of like you and I. Right. Right. And the lawyer asks the party questions, the litigant questions about the case. And they're under oath. 
And so it can be kind of a tense moment. A lot of lawyers look at this as an opportunity to just beat up on a deponent or a litigant, the opposing party, to make them feel little or catch them or whatever. And there are actually times where that might be helpful. But as a general rule, what I like to do if I take your deposition is I want you to feel totally comfortable. And the reason that I do is I want you to, to blab. I want you to go on and on and on and be so comfortable that you right. say dumb things that undermine your case. So you're a wolf in sheep's clothing. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, essentially, you're, you're not going in there to intimidate them. And that's what you told me. And, and I think it's great advice because I used to think, let me be adversarial with the person deposing me. And now I've taken your approach and like, hey, you're just doing your job. Let me be super nice to you yeah. and t- take a breath like you told me. Take a breath before I answer these questions. Yeah. And so on on the litigant side, one of the things you, that people should remember if you ever have your deposition taken is the lawyer is not just gathering information from you about the case. They're making an assessment um, what is this witness going to be like on the stand at trial? Are they likable? Because if you come in and you're combative, what I'm thinking is, oh man, this guy's a jerk, right? <laughs> the judge isn't going to like him. Or if it's a jury right. trial, the jury's not going to like him. I think I, I think I want to make him a big part of my case because he's so right. unlikable. So but you're, if, so they're assessing you, right? They're, they're looking at, they're sizing you up. Right. But if, if you come in and you are thoughtful and measured and well-spoken and friendly and likable, well, then I start thinking, oh, this guy is, is credible. He's likable. Right. He has clear answers for things. Right. I, do I want to take this to trial? Do I want to put him on the stand? That makes me a little bit nervous because he's likable. Right. But somebody comes in and they're combative. You know, my saliva starts going. I think this is great. I hope he's like this. At trial, so that's from from their side. The other mistake people make when they have their deposition taken, well, there's two mistakes, but they go back to the same problem: is that as human beings, when we're accused of something, especially if we're falsely accused, defense, we want to explain. Hey, this no, listen to what I have to say. This you guys have misunderstood this. This is all wrong. Blah 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 blah. But a right. deposition is taken to gather information. And then to pin you down on a position where the lawyer can twist your words around at trial and impeach you. And that just means, hey, we took your deposition earlier, didn't we, Mr. Kearns? Yes, we did. And you testified to this, didn't we? But I'm not going to – the lawyer's not going to say it in a way that is whole or honest or gives context. They're going to do it in a self-serving way that is proof-texted. And so the biggest mistake people make Proof-texted. Well, taking a whole statement, right? Right. And taking a small part of that statement, and by taking just that part of it, twisting around its context and meaning, even though it's literally true. Wow. Does that make sense? It totally does. Okay. So when people go into depositions, the biggest mistake they make is to give into that instinct and offer more information than what's being asked. So for example, if I was deposing you right now, and I said, what's your address? The only answer is where you currently live. You might be tempted to say, well, right now I live at 123 James Place. But before that, 
I lived at 551 North Main. And before that, I lived at, you know, and so Which on. would be my inclination yeah. because I'm b- bouncing all over the place. That's what most people do. Right. And so um, even when you coach up a client the day before, you say, listen, I just can't emphasize this enough. Right. Just listen to the question and answer only the question and resist the urge to explain. Some people have a really hard time with that. Right. Because you're not, it's, you know, remember, it's not like you're going to be in a deposition and the opposing lawyer is going to say, oh, you know what? That makes sense. My client's case is bogus. Thank you for explaining that. You know, we were going to stay here till four, but why don't we wrap this up right now? Thank you so much. All right. So I want to get into some stuff that you guys can make money okay. on. We met because I had a case that we would call a set-aside case. Uh, since we know what that is, me and you, will I'll have you explain it a little bit further. But basically... For people who are listening and they want to get into investing in real estate, we always say, they're always like, well, how do I get started? I'm like, well, there's three things that you can do to get started. Look at the Ds, death, disaster, and divorce. And one of the common themes when you're chasing down behind property taxes, code liens, foreclosures is death. You find that, wow, the reason that these people have not paid their mortgage is they're dead. And the family didn't want to step up and deal with the problem. And that's when I realized, hey, I'll deal with that problem for you. Let me call Tom Grover and he'll do a set aside for X number of dollars. And that set aside will allow me to have the family nominate me to take over the estate. And as long as it's under $100,000 in Nevada... I can actually buy that property without having to go to a formal probate hearing. Do you want to explain in Nevada how people can make money in probate? Sure. So in probate, there are different processes to resolve an estate depending on the size of the estate. And they are by zero to a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred, three hundred, and three hundred and above. And as a general rule, the smaller, the more simple the process is. And when we're talking about the value of an estate, we're only talking about the equity that's in the estate. Correct. And so with the house- Net value. Yeah, the net value on a house, not the gross value, not the market value. And um, the lowest uh, and simplest process is what's called a set-aside. If the estate is worth less than $100,000, you can file a single petition to distribute the estate. And that includes the property. Nobody is actually necessarily appointed as the administrator of the estate- Although if there are things that need to be done in the interim, you can do that. And so um, a lot of times uh, families just don't want to deal with it. And so if an investor comes along, they can say, look, I will purchase your interest in the estate. And so by doing that, the investor essentially becomes the heir. And then they have the... Pay attention, folks. This is where the money gets made. Yep. And so the value to the family is they just don't have to deal with it. They've got an agreement with the investor. The investor is going to pay them money. They don't have to do any paperwork with the court. They don't have to go to hearings. They don't have to go through the process. It's just a simple thing. The investor, there's a lot of upside, but there's risk too. Because when you're buying an interest in an estate, you aren't necessarily guaranteed to get anything out of it. Because in probate, before anybody receives a distribution as an heir... All of the known creditors have to be resolved, which means they have to either be rejected or they have to be paid. And one of the biggest, most common creditors is Nevada Medicaid. And so let's talk about that real quick. Right. This yes. is the big risk that an investor takes. And people need to know about this if they're going to do this. 
Nevada Medicaid provides uh, health care financing payments from the government when certain um, income requirements are met and age requirements. In Nevada, if a person receives Medicaid assistance within the last five years of their life, Medicaid can come in and seek reimbursement from their estate. Clawback. Yep. Right. Right. And that's an important thing because Medicaid is an important program, and that's how they remain solvent. By doing it this way, people are able to receive the health care they need. Right. But the estate is able, the, the state of Nevada is able to remain solvent because they eventually get paid, and they have the highest priority. They have the right to put a lien on property. Higher than the mortgage company. Um, well, they have the highest priority of any unsecured creditor. All right. So, so they the, have this. So they have the. Highest priority of any unsecured creditor, second to the mortgage company, second to the HOA, second to the taxes. The HOA, I think that, don't hold me to this, but I think that actually just changed. Okay. The I, I do know that they are second to a mortgage, though, and I don't think they're necessarily second to an HOA anymore. Okay. But the point being that among unsecured creditors, they're number one. They're going, they're going to get paid, and that's a good And thing. it's usually not a small amount of money that they're asking No, for. because if somebody's received Medicaid, it's because they've been hospitalized or they've had ongoing treatment. And so it, you know, a Medicaid claim can be five, ten, fifteen, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars. They can be huge. And so if you purchase an interest in an estate, one of the risks is that Medicaid will come forward and say, We've got a claim, and that claim could potentially wipe you out. Yeah, and you'd be done because when you're purchasing a an interest in an estate, you're not actually purchasing the property. You're purchasing the right to inherit the property as the heir. You're stepping into the heir's shoes. Could you make it subject to it not having any liens? Sure. I mean, anytime you enter into a contract to purchase something from somebody, you can negotiate terms. So, you, so you, what you're saying is, for an investor, don't pay many up front until you know that, or have some kind of system worked out, mitigate the risk, or you could say. If you want to be paid in full now, I'll pay you this, and I'll assume the risk that this happens if you want to be paid later. It just depends on what you value and what the other party values. It's just right. a, a negotiated deal. But this is one of the, the the bigger risks that can happen in one of these transactions is that as the investor, you could get wiped out by Medicaid, but you could get wiped out by another creditor too, right? Because known creditors have to be paid, and they, they, they come ahead of heirs. So obviously for me... The way we made a lot of money was doing set asides. Mm-hmm. We would buy, we would track down owners, we would find the the errors they could be, and I kind of learned how the whole thing. And if you want to learn how the whole thing works, just read an obituary because that's how the transfer of. Well, it depends on whether there's a will or not. So let's talk about that. Right. So that's true. Thank um, you for clarifying. Most people die without a will. Okay. It's like 90-something percent, right? No, I don't know if it's 90. It's high, though. It's a high percentage of people, when they die, they die without a will. And obviously, if you're listening to this, go get a will, because this can result in some really crazy outcomes. And let me share a couple with you, if that's okay. Please. And if they want to get a will and they want to use you, how can they get a hold of you? I actually just do um, everything after death. I don't do any planning. So if you want to call me, I'll, I'll put you in touch with people that I know that are the best in Las Vegas and we'll do it at the right rate and do it the right way. And I know who they are because I do trust litigation and estate litigation, which where we're litigating often over 
documents. And so the, I know which attorneys in town draft good documents. Okay. So if they want to get a hold of you for anything, yep. are, do you have a social media? Do you have a website? Do you have... I'll just give out my cell number. It's uh, 702-900-3003. You guys got his cell phone number. Yep. And make sure... Give us five stars on the podcast. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you hit the like button. Make sure you comment if you got any questions and you want us to have Tom back. I do have a, a few more questions. Let's talk about the will and not having a will. So um, most people die without a will. And so there's a scheme in place in Nevada statute, and every state has this, called the law of intestacy. And this just says when we don't have a will, this is how we're going to distribute the estate. And the general rule is we're going to distribute it to the closest family members living. So that would be spouse has a preference. Children has a preference. If there's none of those, then we're talking about siblings, parents, and so on. It's in chapter 134 of Nevada revised statutes. Um, and the, the crazy thing is that you can have outcomes when somebody doesn't have a will where somebody that the decedent clearly didn't like ends up inheriting the estate. Right. And and that's and that is a hard thing. And a lot of times in those cases, the family members will come in and say, well, she shouldn't get anything from this estate because he hated her and they had a terrible relationship. And the judge is going to look at them and say, look, my hands are tied. I don't I'm not going to go into a question about whether their relationship was strong, what the person wanted. If the person wanted their estate to go a certain way, they would have done a will, but they didn't. Right. Okay. And so, so like, for example, I had, I had a case a few years ago where a husband and wife had been separated for 30 years. Okay. Oh, yeah. we got to hear this. 30 one. years, 30 okay. years, they've been separated and they never bothered to get a divorce. So the wife dies. And they'd had a tumultuous relationship, okay? There were um, allegations from the kids I'm not even going to get into. There's no will in place. And, and they've so, been divorced for 30 years. And they've been, no, they haven't been, they're not divorced. They're separated for 30 okay, years. Okay, they're separated for Not divorced. So technically. They're married. Technically they're married. Got it. Right? And, and they haven't lived together for 30 years. And they don't like each other. And they don't like each other. Yep. So she dies and um, the husband hires me and we go in to do a set aside and the kids show up and they say, well, you know, mom didn't like him. And they gave all the reasons why. And they said this incident happened or that incident happened. And the court said, were they married? Well, yeah, he gets it. And it's just that simple. And so it can lead to some pretty harsh outcomes because that's because a person may not have wanted it that way. Right. I guess, you know, the big thing that I have learned about the law is mm. a couple things. Number one, it's not what you say. It's not what you think. It's what is on the record. And it's the paper trail behind the record, right? And it can be used against you. And if you don't clean up your stuff properly, if you don't have the right legal documents properly, you're in big trouble. And one of the things that Tom's been great on, and I want to get to a couple of specific deals that we've done together that actually have been great for people. A lot of times when you're chasing a foreclosure and the person's dead, you might just say, you know what, I'm done. But when there's $100,000 worth of equity, you might say, whoa, 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 there's a way that I can make everybody happy here. And a lot of people, when they're first getting into real estate investing, like me, they don't know what probate was. And you meet with a bunch of different attorneys. They're going to give you a bunch of different prices. They're going to explain things. Like if I hired the wrong attorney the first time and he's like, we don't need to do a set aside, we could actually do the one that pays you guys more money, right? Mm -hmm. Because if the attorney decides to run it that way for whatever reason, they could do it that way. And I would follow because they're the expert. 
right? One of the reasons that I really liked doing set asides and chasing those types of things in Las Vegas is because there were several times where we weren't even able to find uh, family members, brothers, siblings. They didn't even exist. We would have to find nieces and nephews and we would still get the deal done. And the best thing about that is they were the least emotionally connected to the outcome. It was found money for them. They didn't even know Uncle Sue had a property in Las Vegas that she let go eight years ago that hasn't been paid for. And finally, it's going around. The other cool thing that we figured out during probate was how to beat the city. Do you want to talk about that? Well, um, <laughs> sure. So we, well, we had a case where... Sunday. Yep. A property had been... I think he lived in it, didn't he? The individual that died, the decedent? Correct. Okay. And the property had sat there for years. Yeah. So in 2011, Nevada passed a law to punish the banks that weren't were sitting on their properties where they would... And just let, letting them go, right? They were becoming blighted in neighborhoods and um, the... I think we can all agree that that's a good goal, right? Short-term strategy. Yeah, it's a short-term strategy. And what happened was the cities were allowed to go in and put liens on properties when they clean them up. Now, if the if the lien was for what the city had incurred in... Their hard costs. Yep, their hard costs. So their labor, their um, equipment, that's fine. But that's not what started happening. So they'd go in on these properties and, you know, maybe there were... Still do. Well, okay. Yeah. Maybe there's like three or $4,000 of hard cost to clean it up, board it up or whatever. Correct. Actually, more than that usually. How much usually is a hard, hard cost? On uh, you know, if they have to clean, if, usually what they'll do is just board it up. And the hard cost on that is going to be like five to $100 to 1000 bucks. maybe more on the price of lumber. But usually they're not cleaning them out. I didn't ever see them clean them out. Okay. Usually they're just boarding them up because usually there's vagrants. Because the clean out's when it gets expensive, right? Right. And yeah. usually there's no benefit for them doing it So because it might have personal belongings and whatnot. Yep. So usually they will just board up the house, but and that'll cost them whatever. But then they find them like 500 bucks a day or some ungodly amount. Well, I don't know what they were doing per day, but on, on this transaction, as I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, they did their the city did their hard costs plus like twenty grand in penalties per lien, right. and so as I remember, there were four or five liens on this property, and it wiped out all the equity. Right, and so the guy had a ton of equity, but because of the city liens, he had negative equity. Yeah, it was upside down. Correct by quite a bit. Le- these liens are a taking by the government, and that's important because. Whenever the government takes property, what what enshrined document is implicated? You should know this, Troy. It's the Constitution? Of, the Constitution, <laughs> right? Anytime the government comes in and they take property, there are constitutional issues and rights that are triggered. And the most important one is due process. The government can't just come in and take your property without due process. Now, the government in certain circumstances can come take your property, for example, if they want to put a highway through where this office is, they can do that. But there's a process they have to do with eminent domain. They have to pay fair market value. You have an opportunity to fight it and so on, right? Right. They can't just show up here and take your property. It's unconstitutional. And so these liens are a taking. It's a constitutional taking. And the problem is that they were sending out notices, which they're required to do, to nobody, right? right. So yeah. nobody's getting served. Right. With this, because the person's dead, right, and and they know this. 
I don't know if they knew, uh, but the problem is uh, you can't serve a dead person, obviously. It's pretty hard. Nobody's been appointed as administrator of his estate, so you can't serve them. They hadn't served the heirs either. So nobody's getting these notices. They'd sent out these notices to some, it was like an Indiana address or something that nobody was getting. And so um, we went in and argued that um, these liens are bogus. I mean, we, you know, there, there's no argument that the city shouldn't be reimbursed for their hard costs. That's fine. Right. We were right? okay with that. Because the city has a duty and an interest to make sure that blight is addressed and taken care of. We don't want to live in a city where blight is out of control. And, but we don't want to live in a city where they're taking people's properties either. Right. And so we went in and uh, litigated this and resolved it with the city and ended up paying a portion of the lien and then- we settled with the city. Um, settled with the city, got it resolved. I don't think the city wanted to have a, a uh, resolution on the books. that Because our argument was, you're, you, the way you've done this is unconstitutional. So I had known Tom for a while. We had done a bunch of complicated cases. And sometimes when you have a good attorney, they second-guess themselves. <laughs> and at this particular junction, you were like, I don't know, Troy. This is really not worth the time. This is not worth the energy. And then we came up with a deal structure where it was like, all right, I feel like talked you into a little bit. I was like, Tom, you got this. You can beat these guys. And you beat them. It, it, it wasn't our time at the poker table at the Red Rock. You went in there. It was like, we. you came back and we got into the table. They were like, oh, okay. They were offering to settle. And then we went back and forth a few times and we ended up getting the property done. We we're able to pay the heir. So the heir got some money. We were, and he wasn't getting anything before. That's one of the great things about this is that um, he looked at this and thought, there's nothing left. Uh, my dad's house has essentially been taken over already by all these liens. There's nothing I can do about it. And because of this, he was able to get money out of it. Right. So that's a, that's a big thing to know is that, you know, when you're working with probate, not only are you able to make money for yourself? But a lot of times you're able to help people out. And if you're going in there with that mindset, which I always did, mm -hmm. then you're able to help a lot more people. And there's also other ways, which we're not going to get into technical things about administrations and stuff like that. But there's a million different tools. If you understand probate as a real estate investor, that you can make money. And if you have a great attorney, you're going to make a lot more money. Probably the number one reason that I was successful, well, it is the number one reason I was successful at probate is because of Tom. And the reason that he was successful with my cases was because of me. And we worked for a long while, a good two years, doing a high volume of cases yep. where we would meet on a weekly basis, go through the case calendar, and we would do whatever it takes and then everybody else started showing up, and that's when it was time to yeah. move on. Well, and see, the thing, the thing too, is um, when we talk about the set-asides, but the other way people, investors, can make money is just by showing up and bidding on properties. And I think we need to talk about that. Let's talk about that. That's too. in Nevada specifically. Well, yeah, and I'm sure other states have the same or similar process. Houses get sold in probate all the time. And we talked about the set-aside just a few minutes ago, but if a house is worth has more than $100,000 of equity – it goes through a more formal process. That process includes selling and liquidating the the residence. Um, and the way that happens is a real estate agent is hired to list the property and sell it. Steve Hoops is the guy that I use for that. And then he goes out and he finds a buyer for the property. And they sign a residential purchase agreement. It's the same 
form that they use on all GLVAR sales. Greater Las Vegas Association of Realtors, for right. those of you who aren't familiar with GLVAR. But we put an addendum on there that talks about how probate sales work. And what happens is Steve goes out and sells it. I uh, It brings the contract back to me, and then we file a petition with the court to approve the sale. Court hearing is set, and at the court hearing, anybody can come in off the street and they can offer a higher bid. Do I need a proof of funds? No, which is crazy. And I'll tell you a story yeah, about that. Yeah, I, know, I know. I'm asking the questions. No, I know. That's a great question. Do right? I need to put my LLC paperwork up there so everybody knows that I'm buying it under an LLC? You don't need to show paperwork, but you could. But most of the guys buy on behalf of an LLC. Could I just show up and bid is what you're saying? Yes. Right. And that seems like it's a crazy it's way to crazy. go, yeah. but it works. And we'll talk about it in a moment because... I've only seen a handful of instances where somebody shows up and bids and then doesn't close. Right. Anyway, so the hearing happens. It's in a courtroom. Judge calls the case and says, we've got property here at 521 North Main. It's appraised at $100,000. The contract is for $100,000. I'm going to open my bids at $105,000, and we're going to go in $1,000 increments. And so other investors will step forward, and, uh, and then there's just a bidding process. And what these guys do is they do as much research as they can on the property in advance. If it's a property that needs some renovation, they, they figure that in and they do their math and they know what is their most they're willing to pay where they think they can still make a profit by flipping. And so they're the ones that do this long-term and make money are disciplined. They do their homework and they're, they're ready to go. But this is not a willy-nilly process. And let me go back a little bit further just because I want to clarify a few things. Yep. So first of all, what he's saying is a lot of times there's just properties that like, you know, are listed on the MLS subject to court approval and, you know, it's already in contracts. So you're like, all right, well, I can't get this property. But if you know that it has to go to court for approval, then you actually still have a chance to get that property. Right. And the other thing that you need to know is that a lot of times sketchy real estate investors will not even put it on the MLS. And the only way that people know about it is following the probate court publishings. What I'm saying is two things. One, if you're looking to go find good deals, you need to go look at what's being published and sold at the probate court. And two, is if you have a property locked in at a good deal in probate and you're waiting for the court approval, you better show up to protect your bid. Right. Because if you don't, somebody else will overbid you and you're out. So that's if you're the original buyer. So if you're the original buyer on the contract. Right and you don't show up to the hearing and somebody overbids you, you're done, you're out. The only point I wanted to really make is that you are bidding on not only the property, but you're buying the terms of the contract. Oh, that's a great point, yeah. You're buying, so if you want to emphasize yeah, that a little so bit. So if, if you are thinking about buying one of these properties in probate, I talked about homework, and you want to make sure that you are doing as much as you can to find out the condition of the property what liens are on the property, right? How much equity is there really in this thing? What's my budget for flipping and so on? But the other thing you need to do your homework on is you need to read the terms of the contract because, because you're bidding on the same terms. In other words, the only thing that's going to change in this contract is the buyer and the price. That's it. And, and after the sale, you don't get to go into the estate and say, well, I want to renegotiate this term or that term or the closing date, for example, or so on. Might a sneaky real estate investor make some hard terms to fulfill if they were trying to protect their bid? Like if I was in there and I know that my property might get bid on, might I say it needs to have $50,000 earnest money hard right away after court approval? Yeah. And and I've seen this go in different ways. Sometimes people will jump up and say, that's 
a ridiculous term and the, the court will strike it. And other times they'll say, well, that's the terms of the terms. So the bottom line, though, is if you're going to buy one of these properties, you've got to read through that contract carefully, because I can tell you that once the sale is final, it's final. You're not going to negotiate terms. I've dealt with situations where investors purchased the property um, and then the estate wanted to change the terms. And we've gone in and, and forced the estate to honor the terms, because sometimes what happens is the estate will want to sell it to a family member. And so their plan is disrupted when an investor comes in and purchases the property, right? Right. And so the estate has to be held. It goes both ways that we don't get to renegotiate. It. And that's because, um, you know, we want to resolve this quickly. And everybody knows in advance or could know in advance what the terms of the contract are. Now, if people are listening to this, they heard you say anybody can come in and bid no proof of funds, no screening, right? right. Literally walking off the street as a total stranger and place bids for property for $400,000, $600,000. And that might sound crazy, uh, but I can tell you in the 10 years that I've been doing this, the number of times, not just my cases, but just that I've seen in court where people don't close, I can count them on one hand. It just doesn't happen very often. Um, but there is a remedy, and I want to talk about what that remedy is real briefly. Please. So let's say you go into probate court this Friday, and you bid on a property, and you, you, you're the winning bidder, and the winning bid's $500,000. Monday comes around, and you realize, you know, I know, I'm not feeling it anymore. That's not a great deal. Wish I hadn't done that. I'm just not going to close. I'm not going to show up to the closing. I'm going to refuse to participate. I'm out. Okay, well, at that point, the estate can go get a new buyer and then relist it again, file again with the court, get a new court date, and uh, they show up. And let's say they have another another uh, hearing, but it sells for four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Guess what happens? You're liable for the fifty grand. That's right. I had a case last couple of years uh, where they referred to me after this happened. The estate was this purchaser had done this, and there was a thirty thousand dollar liability, which isn't huge, right? Yeah, not a big amount. And so I sent a demand letter. For the thirty thousand, hey, you owe us thirty grand. You didn't close. Estate had to go resell it, and now you're on the hook. And the broker sent me this email back, um, telling me that my demand was a joke. <laughs> I remember this. Don't yep. piss off an attorney. Telling me my demand was a joke and to get lost. Right. And so you know, thirty thousand dollars is not a big case, but now you've got my pride in it. Yes, so it is yeah, a big case. Yes. And we filed with the court to enforce the judgment. We had a hearing, and I attached that email, which is another lesson, by the way. And we went in, and the uh, broker that sent that email wasn't there, but his lawyer was, and the judge excoriated them <laughs> for so, sending such a flippant email when the liability was obvious, and they paid. Let me ask you this. So if do you think if he was nice to you, like we talked about in the deposition, he was like, you know what, I really apologize can we figure out a way to work this out? And if he was like, didn't send you such a, like a scorching email, like basically saying you're an idiot, you don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You might've let him off the hook. Well, is, that's the client's decision ultimately, but you could have, you, you could have pressed them a little bit. You, you, you have your client, your client's going to listen to you. At this point in time, you probably told your client we should go after the money. Well, I mean, I obviously can't say what the client and I talked about, but speaking in general terms, in a situation like that, generally, it's better to try to work things out. Right. Um, 
<laughs> right. Probably he probably figured that one out too. Yeah, there, there's 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 times. You know, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. There's times to be collaborative and conciliatory, and there's times to throw punches. And uh, if you throw punches at the wrong time, it's it's going to blow up in your face. Right. So I want to kind of summarize. And for everybody who's been listening, we're going to wrap things up pretty soon here. So if you could give us a five-star review, share the video with a friend, make sure you subscribe to our podcast, make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel, follow me on Troy Kern's channel, Instagram, YouTube, everywhere. We're going to be bringing smart attorneys, guys like Tom, who can help you turn law into money. And that's important because if you're going to be doing real estate investing and you're not working with smart attorneys, you're not going to get very far. The minute I encountered a problem, I found somebody who could find the solution. That was Tom. We've Since then, we've done multiple different cases. We're actually doing one right now that we can't talk about where we're suing somebody. As you build a relationship and a friendship with your attorney, they're going to go to battle for you even more because they care about you. And if they don't care about you, they're not going to go to battle for you. But a couple terms that I wanted to clarify with you, Tom, yep. is when a lawyer says estate assets, creditors, litigation, what do they mean? Well, estate assets is just everything that was in the decedent's name when they died. Now, that might seem like it's a straightforward answer, but it's not. Let me tell you why. Okay. If I died... Um, my house is in what's called joint tenancy. Right. And I bet yours is too. Yes. Um, which means that the surviving joint tenant or spouse automatically has the house titled in their name. There's no probate. It's just- Well, mine's in a trust. Same thing, but, right. it, but it transfers by operation of law. Okay. Okay. And there are, you can do that with a bank account too. And so sometimes a person may die with substantial assets, but we wouldn't necessarily have probate because they have done work in advance to have things transferred without the probate court getting involved. Like deed upon death when it, right. for, for like if you or a trust or joint tenancy, these are all non these are all ways to or payable on death at the bank account. Yep, exactly. And so when we talk about probate, we're only talking about assets that are in the individual's name only. And they don't have any kind of payable on death designation. That's a, actually a really good question. Okay. Uh, and so for creditors, who are we talking about? The most common creditor is Medicaid. And beyond that, the most common creditors are credit card companies and uh, medical debt. But it could be anybody. If you had a personal loan to a friend, uh, that would be, they would, they would have a claim against your estate or... If you owed some entity or some, you know, somebody money for some reason. I'm going to ask you a trick question. Yep. And I'm going to give you a heads up on it. Uh-oh. Okay. What is the most powerful document in a real estate transaction? Well, it's a trick question. So I'm sure that I'm wrong in saying the contract is. A court order. A court order is okay. the most powerful document in anything. That's what I figured out. Because a court order does what? Trumps everything. Yeah. Well, well it depends on what the court order is dealing with. Well, right. let's just say we went through probate mm-hmm. and Judge Yamashita, is Commissioner Yamashita still the guy? He just retired. Okay. Yeah. Let's say Commissioner Yamashita is still the guy mm-hmm. and he says, all of this stuff goes this way. Do we have to follow exactly what the court order says? Court order has to be followed, yeah. So the court order trumps off. If the court order extinguishes a mortgage, does that court order stand? As long as the mortgage company was properly noticed and- they had a chance to be heard, and the court adjudicated it. Essentially, when the court order happens, it's final. 
yes, there are exceptions and and things. Right. And, I'm asking okay. an attorney, so I understand okay. that. But <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, like, when you have a quiet title and you're like, that's essentially just a court order that says this property is mine. Or if you have a court order trumps every single document. So whether you've got liens, whether you've got liens with the city, whether you've got a probate issue, whether you have split ownership, which we've dealt with before, mm-hmm. a court order and a good attorney can make you a lot of money in real estate. Right. So that's just kind of my trick lead question, if you will. We did creditors, estate assets. Was there Litigation a was the third oh. one. Well, just litigation is anytime two parties have a dispute, one of them decides they want to have the dispute resolved by the courts. Right. And 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 if one person decides that, that's what where we get a lawsuit. Right. And um, and so you, you ever know, been in one of those? Not personally, but I've been in yeah a few a few fights have, over the years. So, what advice would you give to our listening audience who's listening to you right now, who may or may not be interested in investing in real estate, who may or may not be interested in working with attorneys? What advice would you give someone? Who's brand new to real estate? Who's brand? Who's thinking about getting into investing? What What should they do? How do they find probate deals? What would you recommend they do? I've never found one out of the obituary, even though I always tell people look at the obituary because generally those people care and they will have their affairs in order. You can look at the probate list, which is just a list of cases for each Friday, online, and it'll list out what they are. And if there's a notation that says bids next to it, that's a property that's going to auction in probate. And my recommendation would be to watch a few of these. Um, go read the contracts, see what they go for, maybe see what they sell for later, see if people are making money on them, and just kind of watch it that way, and then jump in and get going. And go for it. Get There's start- really only a handful of consistent investors that show up to probate court every Friday. Um, there are people that do a couple and they might come and go, but there's a handful that are consistently in there and they're making money because they have figured out how to accurately do their homework on the property, on the contract and how to flip these properties. Cause usually the ones the investors are interested in are the properties that could use a little bit of work that need some renovation and need some attention. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming in today. I appreciate appreciate you sharing all the time. If you guys want to hear Tom again, if you guys want to get a hold of Tom Grover, he is at BlackRock Legal. Mm -hmm. He gave you his cell phone at 702-900-3003, or you can go to his blog. If you put my name, Tom Grover Probate, it'll be the first thing that comes up. Oh, SEO ranking. Thanks for coming on the show, guys. Give us a five-star review. Follow us on YouTube. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on TikTok. And get started investing in real estate today. And make sure you get a small attorney like Tom Grover. Thanks, sir. Peace.